Grab your seat, and uh, as you're grabbing your seat, go ahead and pick up your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 16. Uh, we're going to read from Acts 16. Uh, we're, we're actually going to read from verses 22 through 40. Um, the, the majority of our time this morning is going to be in verse 25 and, and further on, but um, the first verses that we'll read will help set the stage. It'll remind us how Paul and Silas, our main characters at this point, uh, are in the current predicament that they uh, are in. And so we'll read from verses 22 uh, on to verse 40 this morning. Um, before we begin, um, two quick things. First, a reminder, as Pastor Scott said earlier today, we do have our COVID care packages available at the information desk to, to, for sale. If you weren't here last week, we are trying to provide a care package for every single uh, worker on a COVID floor here in Erie, in St. Vincent, and in Hammett. Uh, they are $25, and we are encouraging you to purchase them. Write a, a note of encouragement. We'll give you a card, and then as long as you get those cards back to us, by February 7th, we'll include them in the packages that we deliver that week. And so I would encourage you to uh, participate in that. Um, I do also want to make mention of uh, two very dear members of our church family here at FAC who are um, retiring down to Florida, and, and I want to appropriately recognize them. Um, Jack and Beth Neithamer uh, have attended FAC. They've been members, I believe, since the 70s. Jack's attended FAC his entire life. Uh, Beth has uh, been here for several decades as well, and they have served FAC very, very well. Um, Jack was actually in the interior design business, and he has used his gifting in artistic creativity to greatly influence uh, FAC and the church body. Um, you may not know this, but there's not a, I don't believe there's a certain, uh, a single square foot of carpet in the building uh, that Jack has not had his hand on uh, some way or has helped us with. And uh, we've even tapped him for many uh, consultant needs for, for many interior design needs throughout his time here. And um, you would recognize Beth actually as the faithful woman who served behind the information desk every single week to direct and to inform uh, you guys about our ministries and information here about FAC. You may have interacted with her without even realizing it. Uh, there is rarely a question here that uh, Beth would not have the answer to. In fact, even as the lead pastor, I often found myself asking Beth questions about FAC. <laughs> um, Together as a couple, they're actually going to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary this summer. And so we're, we're grateful for them. We celebrate with them. Uh, we are grateful for their generosity and service. And we're going to pray for them as uh, we transition, uh, as they transition to Florida, they're going to be closer to family. And so uh, we are thankful for them. Um, I'd like to pray for them. Uh, and then we'll go into a time of, of scripture. I'll read from Acts 16, 22 through 40. And so would you pray with me as we begin? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much uh, for Jack and Beth and just what dear family members, if you will, they've been to FAC and uh, what a wonderful testimony they have and a testament to um, just what a healthy church member looks like. We are thankful for them and all that they have provided uh, for us and the ways that you have gifted them and then they have been faithful to using such gifting. And so, Lord, I pray for them that you'd bless them as they go. Um, we now, Lord, lift up our time to you, uh, and we would ask that your spirit would bring us clarity. This is a confusing time with a lot of unanswered questions, Father, but we know that you are the source of all wisdom and knowledge, that you hold the answers in your hand, and we know 
that such wisdom and knowledge is communicated by you through your word. So we come to your word today to grow in wisdom and understanding and to know who you are more so that we may glorify you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Let's go ahead and turn to God's word together. Acts 16, verses 22 through 40. Luke writes, The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up in his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Several years ago, my wife and I had a very uh, brief but strange encounter with a stranger in the parking lot of a grocery store. As Sarah and I were walking in the parking lot to the store, I was um, quietly singing a song to myself. And honestly, I don't even remember what the song was. It was probably just a a tune that I had heard just played on on the radio. Um, But as we were walking, and I I sang this little tune quietly to myself, uh, there was a man walking away from the store to his car and we crossed paths and he, he grinned and he looked at me and he asked me, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I was taken aback, right? I, I sort of stopped in my tracks because I don't think I've ever had a stranger in, in public ask me point blank if I was a Christian in such a random context. And so a little confused, I just smiled back at him and said, 
yes, <laughs> I am. He probably picked up on my puzzled facial expression because then he said, I knew you were a Christian because you were singing. I knew it because you were singing. And then we both carried on. And that was it. <laughs> there, was no, there was no further conversation after that. But I, I think this man recognized, though, the strong connection and so, an association between being a believer in Christ, being saved, and singing. But please know that the reason that we sing in our services together is because it's an art and a craft that is plastered all throughout Scripture. Perhaps you're new to, to, to church or this idea of church, and you wonder, this is a little weird that we come together and we all sing. Why do we do this? Why do we do this corporately when we come together? If you were to read through the Bible entirely, you would actually find over 400 references to singing. And there's actually over 50 direct commands to the reader to sing. There's an entire book of the Bible devoted to singing. And it just happens to be the longest book of the Bible. The Psalms. The Psalms is actually a song book. It's, it's, a, it's a collection of songs that was used in temple worship. And it also just happens to be the most quoted book in the New Testament. You can make the argument that the Psalms was Jesus' favorite book of the Bible. You see, singing is woven into the very fabric of our DNA, of who we are as believers. We were created to sing along with all of creation. Listen to what Keith and Kristen Getty have to say about this. Um, the Gettys are modern hymn writers, and uh, they, they've written a book called Sing, appropriately. And in the book entitled Sing, this is what they write. They, they say, to praise him is the original desire sown into every fiber of our God-designed humanity into every aspect of our God-designed world. So basically, when God created mankind, we were created to, to praise him. That was in the very fabric of the original perfect creation. And then they write, when we sing God's praise, we join with the tune of the cosmos. Just pause. Isn't this incredible? Furthermore, when God created mankind in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Essentially, let's design this being, right? This, this human, man and woman, uh, let's design them to spiritually resemble us. Well, guess what part of the resemblance is? Guess what God does? He sings. More specifically, God sings over us. Right? Con consider what the prophet uh, Zephaniah says in Zephaniah 3.17. Uh, the prophet writes that the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Just as my wife sings a lullaby of love 
and care to our newborn baby, God sings over us a song of great love and tender care. I begin our time together um, paving the way for this because in verse 25, we find Paul and Silas singing, specifically praying and singing. And it may be surprising to us that they're singing considering their current circumstance. This is why we didn't start reading from verse 25, but rather from 22, because I wanted to remind us what the last 24 hours have looked like for Paul and Silas. Really what the last 12 hours probably have looked like for Paul and Silas. Uh, Last week, we read about how Paul and Silas, through uh, their work, were upsetting specific citizens in Philippi, and they were dragged before local authorities and not even given a a, a chance to speak in a fair, genuine, uh, genuine trial, right? And instead of the fair, genuine trial, the crowds turned on them and attacked them. They were beaten with rods and they were thrown in a maximum security prison. Their feet were fastened to these uncomfortable stocks that would restrict them from moving around in freedom, even in the prison cell. And don't forget to consider not just the physical toll that this took, but the mental and the emotional toll. You see, when the Romans beat people with rods as a punishment, they would do it right in the middle of town square because they wanted everybody to see. They didn't want to just hurt you physically. They wanted to hurt you emotionally and mentally. They wanted everybody to see and identify you as a criminal. This was public shaming. I think I've had a bad day when I spill coffee down the front of me. Consider walking a day in their shoes. And so we come to midnight after just an awful day. And we wouldn't for a second blame Paul or Silas if there was a lot of moaning and a lot of groaning and a lot of complaining. It would come as no surprise to us if they sat there and said, well, isn't this just great? This is just not fair. They didn't treat us the way that they should treat Roman citizens. They they ripped our freedoms from us. Who do they think they are? They had no right to. This civil injustice has occurred. Or perhaps they come to the end of the day and they're just downtrodden. They're jaded by the entire situation. They could have easily fallen into despair and said, well, you know, God clearly isn't on our side. God, I don't know know what you're doing, but uh, you seem to be absent. They could have taken the opportunity to doubt God's plan for their life and their mission. They could have questioned if God cared about them at all. God, are you even there? This is just a miserable, stinking circumstance, and you're nowhere to be seen. But if you're a fellow prisoner in that jail cell that evening, you hear something. Your ears perk up, and to your surprise, you don't hear moaning and complaining. You don't hear the curses against the local authorities that you have so many nights before. No, you hear something 
that you've never heard before in that context. And what you hear is a pleasant noise. It's a beautiful noise. It's the noise, the sound of singing and praying, ringing throughout the prison. Paul and Silas just got done experiencing one of the worst days imaginable. However, they do not let their circumstances dictate their praise and worship of God. Think about how remarkable this is, despite of all that they just went through, that they're singing and they're praying. Perhaps there are Sundays where you join us for service, and it's just been one of those weeks, and you sit there and you say, I just don't feel like singing today. I'm just not feeling it. Maybe you've had a rough week and singing is the last thing you want to do. If you're there this morning, let me encourage you to rethink the purpose of our singing. Because singing in praise should never be about how I feel or my experience. It is always about focusing and directing our gaze and our attention back to God Almighty, the Lord Most High, and focusing on his glorious nature and the timeless truths that we know about him. Singing praise to God is never about us. It is always about God, even in our greatest times of despair. You see, what Paul and Silas are doing here, as one commentator writes, uh, they are resorting to a time-tested method of responding to suffering. Singing helps us focus on the glorious eternal realities that may be clouded by the gloomy temporary realities. The commentator continues, it helps us especially because when we cannot produce words of our own, we can use words of others. Something that we will always struggle with in our life, as long as sin is present, is reconciling how I feel with what I know. Reconciling how I feel with what I know to be true. Typically, when we are in anguish, our feelings, they run rampant. Our hearts sink. To, uh, into a deep, dark, emotional void. And you're left feeling like there is no hope. That everything is just kind of colorless. You get to a point where you're just numb to, to everything. There is no joy. It's in those moments that we must take every thought captive. That we must anchor our minds to the eternal truths of Scripture, specifically about who God is. And singing helps us bridge the gap between how I feel and what I know to be true. We must fight our subjective feelings about our current situations with the objective truths that we get from biblical songs. So I want us to know this morning that singing is actually a weapon that we can use in combat, that we can use to attack the lies that we are tempted to believe when we are emotionally compromised. 
This is why I want you to know and to love solid, biblically-based songs. Lyrics that are grounded in the truths of, uh, of Scripture, in the doctrine of Scripture. It's, it's fine if there are worship songs that evoke uh, powerful emotions within you. That's good. But the true power behind some of these songs are not that they make you feel good. Because those feelings are just as fleeting as all the rest. No, the true power behind these songs are the words that are sung. Because it's the words that will teach us doctrine and remind us of the foundational truths of God. And it's our knowledge of the character and nature of God that sustains us through the emotionally difficult times. It's those moments when I feel the crippling weight of discouragement. The moments when it feels that hope is lost, that I remind myself, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ this solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other sound ground is sinking sand. This past fall, I had the opportunity to officiate a wedding of a former student of mine. The mother of the groom, just a year prior in 2019, was diagnosed with glioblastoma, which is one of the worst kinds of brain tumors of all because it's so aggressive and grows so fast. The fatality rate of those who experience this is very high. In 2019, she had gone to the ER reluctantly encouraged by her, her son and her husband because she wasn't quite feeling herself and she had some mild headaches. And by Monday, 48 hours later, she was in brain surgery. Fast forward a year, it's really quite miraculous that she was even able to be at her son's wedding. And her and I uh, were having a very casual conversation about Scripture and about uh, her predicament. We were actually talking about Job, right? The story of Job. If you're unfamiliar with it, you should go read it. But Job just lost everything. Job was uh, had quite the plight, and we were talking about that. And she looked at me right in the eyes and said something to the effect of, Mike, our spiritual enemy's number one goal is to make the believer sin. And if the enemy can't get you to sin, the next line of attack is to discourage you. She didn't know this at the time, but I was experiencing a very discouraging stage of life. The last few years, I have felt the effects of living in a fallen world more than I ever have before. And in that moment, I was in a very, very dark place, both emotionally and mentally, due to a whole barrage of different things going on. Once more, she looked at me and she said, Mike, do you know how to battle discouragement? Do you know how to battle discouragement? In that moment, 
I felt like she was staring into the deepest parts of my soul. It was a very odd but powerful moment because even though she had no clue about what I was experiencing, it was like she could see all of my discouragement and she could see all of the pain and she could see everything that I was going through. And that question hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was caught off guard. I was speechless. So she helped me out a little bit. She said, Mike, do you know how to battle discouragement? You praise God. You praise God. If there's anybody who's experienced discouragement in the last few years, it's this woman who is frankly blessed to be alive. Yet she still praises her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praising God, although doesn't ultimately change our circumstances, does remove some of the sting of the pain. Tertullian, who is a second century theologian, has written that the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. And so praising God in the midst of our circumstances enables us to look at our problems with eyes of hope specifically the hope of God. And Paul in Romans 15, 13 actually says that the God, the God of hope fills you with joy and peace as you trust in him. To sing is to, is to praise the God of hope who fills you with joy and peace. And we do that by trusting him. And when we do this, something remarkable happens. When we worship, not just in song, but with our very life, when our lives are are poured out as an act of worship, despite the challenging circumstances, it sets up our witness. Our worship paves the way for our witness. This is what I mean by that. The the rest of the world, non-believers, they experience the same pain and the same challenges and the same discouragements that we do. They feel the effects of living in a fallen and broken world just as we do, even though they may not be able to explain it. They know it, they feel it, and the world is looking on and watching us navigate through troubled waters. And when they see us experience discouragement, yet still be able to sing God's praises, still be able to have a peace that surpasses understanding, still be able to sit there and have joy, they look at us and they say, now, what do they know that I don't? What is it? What is the source of their joy that I don't have? How on earth can they possibly cope? This is what we see in in our passage back in Acts 16. Paul and Silas, their worship sets up their witness in really two different spots in this passage. The first one's in verse 25. It says that they were praying and they were singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. They had an audience with the prisoners. Now remember, this is a high security prison. These are cold, hardened criminals. These are bad people who most likely deserved to be in bondage. And once more, they've probably heard some of the most awful noises from other cells as people are dragged in. They've heard the distress of the prisoner. They've heard the screams of anguish, but not on this night. 
No, this evening what they hear is marvelous. And you can imagine their ears intentively uh, listening in to Paul and Silas as such a foreign sound rings through the prison. And the second part that we see here, their worship sets up their, their witness to the jailer. Right? A, a few weeks back, we spoke about Lydia and how she was uh, religious and she represents somebody with a religious background, a, a churchgoer, if you will. The jailer is exactly opposite of Lydia. Right? He is the first century equivalent of an unchurched person. These songs and, and of praise and these prayers may have been the first time that the jailer has ever even heard of Jesus. And what's worse is that he played a part in putting them in prison. He, he, he was the one that put them in the inner cell. He was the one that fastened the stocks to their feet. He assisted in the process of restricting the gospel message from going out. He is culpable. Well, as we know from previous chapters, that the message of Jesus cannot be stopped. It's unstoppable. It will always find a way, no matter how hard the opposition fights. And we see it once more here. As a giant earthquake hits the area, all the prison doors break open. Now, this is Paul and Silas's chance to get out, right? If I'm in their shoes, I'm, I'm hightailing it out of there as quickly as I possibly can. But Paul and Silas see an evangelistic opportunity at hand. After the earthquake, the jailer is so distraught that he actually draws his sword to kill himself. He does this because Roman guards could actually be put to death if their prisoners escaped. So he's probably thinking it's better uh, to, to, to take my own life in dignity because I'm a dead man anyway. Do you see the contrast here, though, between Paul and Silas and how they react in despair and the jailer and how he reacts to despair? Paul and Silas are singing, are joyful in their despair, whereas the jailer wanted to kill himself. The world just doesn't simply know how to cope with despair. And so Paul, with such urgent compassion, calls out to him. He shouts out to the, the jailer who probably roughed him up earlier in the evening. Uh, Paul calls out to him and says, hey, hey, don't do that. Put the sword away. We're all still here. And all of a sudden, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a glimmer of hope for the jailer as no one has escaped. But in his mind, he's still distraught. You'll notice that he's still not at peace. His life was just saved because nobody escaped, yet he is still distraught. He understands that there's something wrong and that he's still on the hook. His life was saved physically, but he's no longer afraid of what the Roman authorities will do to him. He's now afraid of what God is going to do to him. Consider the events of the night through the eyes of the jailer from his perspective. He's just thrown two men in prison who were accused of disturbing the city. They've been singing all night and praying to their God. It's a little weird, but whatever. They're locked away and there's nothing that they can do about it. And then all of a sudden, an earthquake hits. Are you serious? What are the odds? 
This, this random event hits. Most of the time in Scripture, when an earthquake is mentioned, it represents the powerful presence of God at work. And so this jailer is smart. He's putting two and two together. These men have been praying to their God and praising their God, and their God responded. And I was the one who threw them in the inner prison. And I was the one who fastened their feet to the stocks. And if I was against them, then certainly I have acted against their God. And if their God can do this, What do I have coming for me? So he falls to their feet, not in worship, maybe not even in reverence, but in absolute fear. He's so scared that he's shaking. And then he asks the most important question of his entire life. It's clear that you guys know what you're talking about. So what must I do to be saved? This is a cry for mercy. The jailer understands and knows that he is at odds with God and wants to know what he needs to do to be saved from that. And once more, this is more than just a request to be saved physically. That's already happened when Paul stopped him from killing himself. No, he comes face to face with evidence of an almighty God. And he doesn't want to be found on the opposing side. So what must I do to be saved from the God who I was actively opposed to? Have you ever found yourself asking that question? What must I do to be saved? If you never have, perhaps a good day, uh, today is a good day to start asking that question. However, you probably have, and you've probably come up with a slew of answers. What must I do to be saved? You ask yourself, and then you answer yourself by saying, I need to uh, attend church more. I need to read my Bible more. I need to to, to pray more. I have the whole to-do list of things. I just need to be a, a good person. I need to be a better person. And maybe when my life is done and the scales of my life, my, my good deeds, if I've been good enough, will just barely outweigh the bad ones. If if only perhaps I could be just a little bit better than the times that I was bad, then maybe that's how I'm saved. But Paul and Silas don't say anything like that. There's not even a close mention to that. The jailer asks, what must I do to be saved? And they simply respond, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's it. And you know what? If you go home and tell your household and they believe, they're going to be saved too. Supplies to them, just like it does to you. You may wonder what you have to do to be saved, but there actually isn't really anything you need to do because everything has already been done for you through Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all of the requirements of your salvation. And all you have to do is believe that he did. It's a trust. All you have to do is trust that what Jesus did in his life and in his resurrection and in his death and his resurrection, that it's enough to save you from a God you have opposed your entire life. So would you decide in your heart and mind in this very moment that Jesus is your Savior? 
and then entrust your life to his tender care. We must know and recognize that a belief in Jesus is not merely an intellectual acknowledgement that he did such things. Even the demons do that. No, belief is an acknowledgement of trust that Jesus is Lord and Savior, that he is enough, and then demonstrating such by entrusting, by attaching your life to his. It's one thing to look at a chair and acknowledge its structural integrity and trust that when the time is necessary, I believe that it will hold, you, hold me up when it needs to. But a demonstrating trust is to go over to the chair and not just sit on it, but to put your whole weight on it, to stand on it. On Christ, this solid rock I stand. All other ground, everything is just sinking sand. Would you pray with me?